Hi, welcome to episode 24 of the Theory of the Postdoc Evolution, which is the career podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. It features an interview of Sheila McCartan, who is a data strategy team lead at Exploristics. This interview was conducted by Claire Tonry, a postdoc in our Welcome Wilson Institute for Experimental Medicine in June 2022. Enjoy! Hi, Sheila. Hello. So a lot of you may recognize our next speaker, Sheila, who she used to work here in the in the wing uh, until 2019, 2020? Uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. 2020, yeah, sometime in that pandemic era. Um, so prior to that, she has had a really extensive background in biomedical research, doing postdoctoral research in Oxford and here in the centre. Importantly, one of the things that Sheila did during her time here, or maybe before that, was she upskilled and, and trained in OR programming, which has led to her getting her current role in a company called Exploristics, which is a Belfast-based company who provide biostimulation software and biostatistics services for designing, analysing and reporting clinical trials and real-world studies. So Dr. McCartan is now a data strategist and leads a skilled team of scientists in the development of clinical trial disease models. Her team work closely with the strategic consulting and product development teams to support client projects. I'll let Sheila explain in in better detail about what her actual day-to-day role involves. But I'm going to start off back to your academic days um, and just ask you a bit about like how your experience of academia was throughout the the years that you were in it, if uh, what you enjoyed about it and what ultimately led to your decision to to try a different path? Um, what did I enjoy about it? I mean, there was loads of aspects of it that were really great. You get to direct your own research and investigate all sorts of things. And even down to the details of being in a lab where there's just a hum of a centrifuge while you're figuring out your different aliquots of things, you know, and being able to walk from writing a report at your desk to going in there and having that peace and quiet of the lab and things like that. But what I didn't enjoy would have been the kind of aspect of publisher perish and then whether or not you were going to get tenure. So that pressure, I think, was constant. And you had chatted previously about the two-year contracts and how you really find yourself after your first year. You've, you've just got the opportunity to get really stuck into a new area and you're already having to start thinking about where you're going to move on to. So by that stage, I think I had done seven or eight years of postdoc by then. And I thought, well, maybe look for 10 years somewhere outside of academia. And so what, at what stage did you think about then learning more about R and R programming? Because I'm not I'm sure you're, you know, we sounded like you were, lab-based for a lot of your research. So um, what led you then to think about upskilling in that in that area? It was because of when we were, I was um, postdoc in the University of Oxford, we worked with a technique called mass cytometry. And uh, you wouldn't have been able to analyze the data. It's probably quite similar to the likes of RNA-seq. You couldn't have just used GraphPad Prism, unfortunately. You needed to kind of do kind of hierarchical clustering and different kinds of unsupervised algorithms and the like. And at the very start of that, it was kind of like, because it was a relatively new technique, there wasn't many people who you could go to for advice to figure out how to do this. So like that, you were just reading, 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 figuring out how am I going to do this? Um, So I had to go at trying our programming to see how far I could get with it. And it was kind of forced by sheer desperation because I was like, if I can't get this, I can't report my data. And if I can't report my data, then, you know, I won't be able to show all the work that's been done. 
And did you find that there were many resources available when you wanted to learn that? Or like, how much did you get support from your PI or was it just something you did very independently? No, it was it was done independently, but there's a huge online R community. It's an open source, open source programming. And then um, what you would do is that you would kind of go on to a site called Bioconductor. And there people have produced loads of R packages specifically for the kind of problem you're trying to solve. And they write them up in things called vignettes, which is nearly like a step by step of how you can try this. And then the likes of F1000 Research, they also publish papers that where somebody's nearly leading you by the hand in terms of writing each line of code for you and giving you an example. So that if you were trying, you said, well, if I can get this working, then maybe I can get my own stuff working too, you know. So I'm taking notes as you're speaking because I've been trying to learn more for ages and I do enjoy it, but it's a real brain challenge. It absolutely is like, yeah. But then at the same time, it gives an instant hit of dopamine. If you get something to work, you hit enter and it worked. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, It's almost like a game. So when it came to when you decided then that like a career in academia just wasn't going to suit you, how did you find opportunities? Like how did you eventually come upon Exploristics and and what kind of searches had you done prior to that or what, what areas had you looked in? Um, initially, I didn't think I would be leaving academia. And I know that um, you've probably had other people on chats like this. It's actually a wrenching thing. It's a big decision and it breaks your heart because you are work- walking away from like almost a decade's investment in that area. But the funny thing is when you find yourself the other side, you're kind of quite happy with where you are because you do get to take an awful lot of the very, very good aspects of academia with you. And you have tenure and you have work-life balance and you've got a decent salary. You know, but you're still doing the things that you like to do, albeit I'm not in the lab. Um, for the actual exploristics job, I think I got incredibly lucky because I was doing even just searches on NI jobs that were I was literally just putting in scientist and seeing what turned up, you know, so starting from there. But then of course, having a bit of programming on the CV was incredibly helpful. And then another thing that I would fully recommend for people is you you probably know that. Like there's research there that says, you know, sometimes people will look at the desirable and essential criteria or and they'll say, I must have every single one of those points before I even apply for this job. But you might not have an idea of what that company's recruitment is going like. So, for example, they might say, oh, you know, there's nobody applying for this. And here's somebody that has about 60 percent of the essential criteria. Let's interview them anyway. So I would fully advise people to pitch for things that they really like, even if they don't have 100% of what the job spec's looking for. And so did you did you know much about the company before you went for the interview or was it something you just learned when you entered? Because I'd actually, I'd never heard of them. And I think it's an example of how many companies there are in Belfast that we're probably just not aware of. Yeah, um, no, I hadn't heard about them. And then I did loads of research prior to the interview because, of course, any interview you'd be going for, the first thing they're going to ask you is, what do you know about us? But in fairness, the company's fairly young. It's only really been knocking around for 10 years. And when I started two years ago, there was just in and around 30 to 35 people in the company. Now we're up to 60 and we're recruiting. So the company's growing um, and hopefully we'll hear more about us. Um, just when we're on the topic, do you have any advice of getting professional consulting experience or part-time pro bono work with external companies that serve multiple businesses as well as in a specialised industry such as biotech whilst pool stocking before leaping for the job interviews? So I guess that summarised, like, did you have any support in making a transition like that or do you know of any resources out there? In terms of consulting, um, 
I'd say there is opportunities there. I know there would be opportunities within our company. For example, one of the things that we do, as you'd read out in the kind of biography at the start there, is the main thing that our team does is the development of disease area models. And um, that can be any disease area. Uh, so, for example, if you were a postdoc and you had extensive background in something like arts or, you know, COPD or, or you know, on areas of oncology that we didn't necessarily have the same extent of expertise internally, it would be very good to be able to kind of chat to somebody that had much more expertise than us to kind of get their insight into things like that. Um, and there are there are more companies out there than you think, as you as you were saying, that as I've been working within Exploristics, we have clients, usually what they have is they have a certain drug treatment. And these days, the drug treatments are really very kind of, you know, molecular targets. And they're very kind of, not, not to say niche, but they have a specific thing that they do rather than being a broad spectrum kind of thing. And uh, what they want to do is they have all their kind of in vitro data, all their in vivo data, their animal models. They've done maybe a phase one trial in terms of safety. And now what they want to do is they want to kind of get over the hurdle of getting the likes of the FDA or, or other regulatory bodies to kind of pick up on this as being a decent treatment for a disease area. And with that, those small companies, the more consultants that they can chat to and so on, the better for them, because they are always wanting to chat to kind of like key opinion leaders and different things like that to get more insight into uh, where they can bring their drug. So just to kind of give you a bit more background, because if people were wondering, well, how do you kind of scratch that itch of the academic kind of research and getting stuck into stuff? Well, where we find that is that the client, perhaps perhaps their drug targets something like senescence or perhaps it's targeting a certain type of immune cell or perhaps it's targeting something like fibrosis. So it's not really targeting a disease area. So which disease area do they choose? And that's kind of where we come in and we sort of say, well, this is the kind of, you know, nearly like the history of clinical trials in any association with the drug treatments similar to yours. And these are the disease areas that have elements of that kind of molecular area, like senescence, for example, that you're interested in. And then we kind of lay out all the evidence for them and kind of help them with their decision making and also their clinical trial design. That's really that's really interesting because I, I again don't know much about the company, so it's it's really interesting to see to hear how research focused it kind of actually is the work you're doing at the moment. I was going to ask you then about the actual adjustment period when you did move into industry. Was there anything you found particularly challenging or surprising, whether that be a good surprise or, or a bad surprise? I think that uh, when you're a postdoc or postgrad you're doing such a massive amount of work all the time that you don't even know the extent of things that you're doing. You know, you're you're designing experiments, then you're doing the experiments, then you're analyzing the experiments, you're getting the visualizations, doing the presentations, you're writing grants, you're looking after students, you're actually keeping an awful lot of plates spinning at any time. Um, and then you move over into a job where the expectations are not that <laughs> they're not. And you're kind of like, but I've done all of this. I did all of this for this. And they're like, yeah, you, you could have gotten away with maybe, you know, half of what you did for that. Period. But I'm used to, to turning out a report and a presentation and, a, you know, because you were used to doing so much. So the kind of weird thing that I'm finding that I'm still trying to get used to is now I can relax into a normal nine to five. There was still that compulsion, nearly like with the, you know, publish or, pre or perish type thing of I got to keep going. You know, when you're in when you're postdoc and you're like, I got to keep working because if I don't, I'll miss on the opportunity to generate more data or publish more papers or get a bit of this grant written. 
there's always that pressure. So even now it's nearly like deprogramming myself out of that pressure because I don't need to. I'm kind of supported within a company. There is no need to publish papers. The, the main impetus is the kind of client satisfaction and bringing in business instead. And that's done within a team. That's probably a nice thing for people to hear <laughs> that, that you can almost relax a bit more um, in your current role. Can you tell us a bit more then about, so in addition to obviously your, your programming skills, were there any other, say, soft skills that you would have just acquired as a postdoc that you feel have like really helped you in your role? Again, previous to what I just mentioned, that postdocs do an awful lot very quickly. And okay, because it's always on to the next, there's always another deadline and, and so on. But um, any of the skills, I think it's quite remarkable how many of the postdoc skills are very transferable into the area. So, for example, your presentation skills are going to make you excellent for client-facing roles because you have to communicate with all sorts of audiences as a postdoc anyway. You know, you're going to be talking to people outside of your field of knowledge, so you need to be able to take the technical info that you have and pitch it to that audience. It's the same thing with talking to clients uh, like that. I was saying, like, you, we're writing reports, but we're also kind of, we're looking at the equivalent of research questions and thinking about, well, how are you going to tackle that? So you can then explore different avenues, same as you would in your experimental setups, because, you know, you're going to try this, try this, try this. So there's an awful lot that I think is transferable and that they're upskilling, whether it is in programming or anything else. I think all postdocs find themselves where they're like, I have no idea how to do this thing, whether it be a lab technique or, you know, some kind of theoretical thing. But you start from the beginning. And you just keep going until you're there at a level where you're like, oh, I think I can talk about it now or do a bit more on it. And um, that's kind of core to all the, the things. And that's a good skill to have. Yeah, I think I think we are increasingly learning more and more that uh, just even the, the experience of being a postdoc in itself leaves you extremely well qualified for, for most most jobs out there. So, again, just to get a bit more idea about what what your work is like now, can you tell us a bit more about like the day to day job? I'm sure it's quite varied, but for, you know, an example of what's expected of you um, on a daily basis. So I think within our team, there would be kind of three core elements. It would be the building of the data models. And that would start off with kind of like same as you, you would as a postdoc any disease area. You're starting to try and get an overview of it. What's the kind of epidemiology of it? pathology, kind of the expectations for disease progression, all that kind of broad overview. And then you dig into kind of nearly like the history of that disease with regards to clinical trials, what's been done before, what kind of treatments have been investigated in that area. The next thing that we do that's a wee bit more specific is that with any clinical trial, you've got your primary and secondary endpoints. So we start to dig into those and figure out which ones are the most commonly investigated and which ones would be important to a client. And then we start to gather as much data as we can about those endpoints. And then what we do is we would support uh, statistical consulting in using a kind of bespoke piece of software that's core to the company called Keras, and it will run a clinical trial simulation. So, for example, we'll take all that information that we have about those endpoints for that disease area. As if, for example, let's say it was something like cystic fibrosis and you were looking at like the forced expiratory volume and uh, that was the endpoint that the client was interested in. We'd have all the information we could of telling you what a population should look like at baseline. So you have actual numbers, you know, means and standard deviations or what have you for that value. So that can then be used with by the software to generate a virtual population. 
So then you can kind of add in different scenarios for how you think that trial might go and then get an output in terms of, well, because of the value, the variability in that value, you're going to need much larger end numbers than you expected. And then that gives the client an idea of, well, that's the knock-on effect in terms of cost of recruitment and whether it's worth looking at a different endpoint or so on. So that's the disease models. But then we also get client work where a client will come along with a kind of, um, I'm interested in this. What do you, what can you tell me about it? And that kind of goes back to what I was chatting about in terms of the biomarkers and the kind of broad areas like molecular areas like senescence or, you know, even fibrosis or that there as in, well, our drug can do this. What other drugs do that? And what other disease areas do they look at? And what other biomarkers have been looked at there? And if I wanted to look at an endpoint, a clinical endpoint, can I get the biomarker to also reflect what's happening? Things like this where they want to learn about their drug, but also show the likes of the FDA that their drug is having an effect. And then the third strand to what we do is kind of just building tools, programming, writing scripts to kind of help us do all of the other two areas. So you can kind of tinker around with code and things like that too. It's a, it sounds very, it does sound quite varied. And I, so, I mean, it sounds like you're very happy there, but did you find anything particularly challenging or is there anything aspects of the job that, that you don't love as much? <laughs> I mean, no job is perfect, but is there anything that you do find challenging? I would say we could take that um, in two ways. One thing is you get a lot of client work and, and the disease models and so on, the, kind of the work will come through sometimes thick and fast and you're having to hit the deadlines. But even having said that, it is rare that you need to go beyond your nine to five or your weekends to hit any deadlines like that. But what you find then probably a hangover from the postdoc and is you're like, oh, but I have a level of perfectionism that I would like to take this particular piece of work to. But then on the plus side, you learn to say that's enough. Move on to the next thing. You know, so there's that kind of tension between what you'd like to do versus what you need to get out to the client now because the deadline's coming up and you have other things to do. Um, another thing that I guess ties in with the transition is I would have been pretty happy and confident in my kind of biological experience background of experiments and different things like that. I had minimal experience in statistics and minimal experience in programming. And here I was moving into a company where the majority of people in it are statisticians and they are absolute experts. And uh, the programmers as well, you know, the software development team are absolutely brilliant at what they do. And I think that can be quite intimidating until you learn they're incredibly friendly and very communicative people and give you plenty of support. And it's nice to be in a place where you're moving up to their level, you know, because you're always trying to improve yourself in terms of what they do. Um, that, that's, that is uh, one of the questions I had as well, what um, I guess the support Exploristics uh, offer for, for your own, uh, your skills development, or your personal development. And also on that, is there good career progression from what, from your experience so far or in the role that you're in now? Yeah, so I might take this opportunity then to chat a wee bit about the recruitment and that there and to give people a, an overview of what it would be like if you were working in the place. In terms of career progression, there is, for example, if you, were, you start at graduate level or you could be an associate or you could be senior or you could be principal and you're moving up through those different levels and your salary is reviewed every year and it will be increased every year. There's also potential for bonuses and the like. With regards to the different levels that you can move up through, those have recently been kind of even stretched a little bit further in that you could be associate one or associate two. 
our senior one or senior two, principal one or principal two. And expertistics are really open about their salary bands. You can just go and look up what the expectation is for your salary at that level. So then you would have an idea of what anybody else within your company should have at that level. In terms of another thing that the company do as well is continued uh, personal career development. So once every six months, but even more regularly, really, because your team lead would be checking in with you. There is a good review of how you're doing. And it's not a kind of interrogation in terms of, oh, you weighed expectations that you would do X, Y, Z. Not at all. Instead, it is it's like, what do you want? Is there another role within the company that you like a bit more? And maybe we could kind of help you transition over to that. Or is there an element of training within your role that you think you would really, really benefit from? So, for example, our team earlier this year would have gotten hours and hours of our programming training and all sorts of different elements just to either kind of boost the skills we already had or kind of something for us to learn new. So there's plenty of kind of support in that way. There's also a really lovely culture in that there's um, there's a health and well-being team, there's quality and diversity teams, there's the environmental team that call themselves Green Sticks. But it's a really nice place to work. And one of the things I wanted to kind of encourage people in terms of that is if you were saying to yourself, right, I like the sound of that, but I'm a wee bit worried about my programming and stats because I was exactly the same. I was kind of like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, you know, what it would be like going into a role like this. But within our team, you'd get plenty of support with regards to the stats and programming. But the other thing, too, is if you were applying, what kind of level you would be wondering, what kind of level of, of experience would you need in that area? So I would say if you've banged your head off of a computer trying to get some data analyzed using either R or Python or any other kind of script. In other words, if you've started from data and had a go at bringing it the whole way through for just one project and you could describe to us how you got that up and running in terms of you got RStudio set up or you got PyCharm for Python set up and you had a go at it and this is what you found that would be decent for us to kind of say invitation to interview for you to chat through the likes of that. Same with the stats. You don't need to know it to a kind of absolute detailed theoretical level. You would just need to be able to talk about how you applied it to a project and maybe why you chose the stats tests that you did. Um, But the other thing there was the academy. So if you really were kind of like, I have had no opportunity to get any experience in these. We also have an academy that recruits, um, starts advertising around about spring for kind of starting in the, in September. And it is what you can imagine in that you'll get training in the stats and you get training in uh, programming. The expectation is that you don't have much background in either. And there's details of that on the website. That all sounds really interesting and I'm glad I because I, I was going to ask you about those opportunities. So I'm glad you've had a chance to to advertise. And I hope people have been have been paying attention to, the, to that because um it sounds like there's a lot there that would that would interest people. So the other question, I guess a more general question, not not specifically with exploristics. Do you have any advice then for people who are considering leaving academia? You know, what what have, what has been your experience overall and, and what what do you think is important for people to know or be aware of if they if they're making that choice? I think the initial decision to leave and the leaving can be really wrenching and heartbreaking, but you totally will thrive on the other side. Yeah, because you've got more skills than you think you do. Yeah, well, I think that's that's really important to know. Can you leave us on 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 what you really love about your job? If there's if there's a top one or two things that you that really motivate you day to day. The thing I was worried about when I left academia is that I would leave the kind of research element behind. But luckily, within this job, there's plenty of opportunity for that. Um, and not only that, it kind of spans any disease area, anything that you might get want to get stuck in investigating. And uh, that's an element that I really love. 
That's it for this interview. I hope Sheila's experience has reassured many of you of the fact that leaving academia doesn't necessarily mean leaving research behind. For more interviews, follow the podcast or visit its page at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast pdc. Bye.